0: Welcome to this latest edition of the Freshlands Podcast. My name is Richard Bird. I head up our IP department in Hong Kong. And I'm delighted today to be joined by my colleagues, Peter Jaffe, a special counsel in our Washington, D.C. office, and Teresa Elaine, a principal associate in our Frankfurt office. And what we're going to be doing today is applying our experience of acting for investors, on both serious investment rounds and on acquisitions of early stage tech companies, to look at some of the mistakes that they make in the protection of their IP and their data in their early years that can impede their ability to attract investment uh, further down the line. Now, Teresa, it's often an innovative business model and the data that a target generates and how they use that data, um, that makes them so attractive to the investor community and justifies the high valuations being paid. Um, but in my experience, startups, frankly, often mislead themselves in thinking that by putting an NDA around their key ideas and asserting that they're proprietary, They mislead themselves to think that the law will actually recognise any rights in what they have.
1: I think it it starts at the core of what an investor is trying to buy and what a company is trying to sell. So when you look at traditional business models, it's, it's quite easy to grasp what the business model is and what kind of assets are part of that business. When it comes to digital businesses, it's much more difficult to actually grasp what are the assets, where does the value lie and how is it protected? So how can I make sure that this, what I have created has a value and that I can protect that value. And, and that's where the IP comes in because that's usually where the value is. And then in a sale, how can I make sure that it is transferred? And what we saw in a number of cases is that we've got a lot of buzzwords flying around, patents, trademarks, copyrights, data ownership, know-how, track secrets. And in the end, it's not entirely clear what is actually the value and how can I protect it. So when we looked at a software company, the question was, how can I stop third parties from reselling my software? And the startup had started looking at using trademark protection. And when you've got trademark protection, it's really the brand but it's not how you can use the product. But rather, you need to, to look at, for example, the software code, then you can have copyright protection, for example. That's something which which founders need to be aware of and to document how, what, what, what they are creating.
0: Early trade companies often lack the resources to properly protect their technology and you know can be drawn into applying for patents, you know, in their home jurisdiction, um, perhaps with broadly stated claims, and often these don't really stand up to uh, particularly close, close scrutiny. And I think investors are, in fact, getting increasingly sophisticated in um, examining the, the quality, the depth of uh, the IP portfolio of a, of a startup company and attributing value accordingly. I mean, I still remember vividly uh, one particular example I worked on maybe five or six years ago now. Um, with a very large um, tech investor making a sizable minority investment into a um, Singaporean-based company, uh, which did indeed have a very novel approach to um, financial modelling and uh, sought to attribute a lot of proprietary value to that um, that business model and also had a patent. Uh, and they were able to go out to market and say, we've patented our technology, and this is a real validation of, of the innovativeness of that um, technology. When, when we came to look at it, it was just a single patent filed in Singapore um, at a time when actually Singapore did not substantially examine patents, so you apply for it and you get it. That really didn't stand up to a lot of scrutiny.
1: I think that that's a very important point you're making. Founders are usually very diligent when it comes to their home country. Uh, and looking at what can I register there, as you said, patents or also trademarks. But um, if you want to have a scalable business, then it's important to also think from the start, where do I want to expand and to look from the very beginning as to is is it possible to expand? I had a recent example um, on a few cases recently. Uh, The startup had done a trademark research in its home country Um, and everything was fine. But then it came to us and asked us the question, can we actually then now register in, in, in different countries, our trademark and our brand? And then we did a broader trademark search and saw that actually, in a number of jurisdictions, there were already quite similar trademarks registered, which could then be a hindrance for that startup to go with its current brand into those additional jurisdictions. And that then brings us to the question, at what point do I need to rebrand? Can I now rebrand? Or do I have to go into the discussion with those third parties owning these other brands?
0: Well, one shouldn't underestimate the value that trademarks can have in um, building at least some perimeter of protection around what may otherwise be a largely unprotectable business model. And you know, establishing the brand, establishing proper trademark protection for the brand may in fact be the only Only way in which to to achieve a form of IP protection.
1: Coming back to that first question, actually, um, brand, a trademark is something very tangible and I can register it and that's something that I can rely on. We're often talking about data ownership, but actually there is no data ownership right. Um, And then we've got, then we are going back again to the traditional IP rights and also contractual protections, access rights, and then granting these. Contractual access rights and use rights.
0: And, and Peter, not only is um, data very difficult to protect with IP rights, but actually there can be some real inhibitions on the ability of a, a company to transfer that right that, that, that data.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and I'm reminded of a company whose privacy policy I was looking at recently. And their privacy policy actually said, personal data is an important business asset. Well, that's interesting because when you think of a business asset, you usually think of first the ability to use the asset and then second, the ability to transfer the asset at some point. But I think personal data protection laws are increasingly chipping away at, at the ability of companies to do either of these things. Um, so in the case of use, uh, you know, obviously there there's a lot of limitations in privacy law based on purpose limitation. Uh, so in other words, you know, did you tell... Uh, data subjects, how you're gonna use the data and, and are you sticking to the original purpose for which you collected it? And then you've also got challenges like data subject access rights. So if a data subject can request that you delete some of your data, um, obviously you're gonna to have to stop using it. And that can materially impair the value of certain types of data. So often a, a data set is valuable if a company can claim that it is comprehensive. And so they say, look, if you wanna look up the data on this particular person, we have all of all of the data that meets criteria X. Well, even if one person submits a data subject access request and deletes their data, it makes it harder for that company, uh, materially harder for that company to say that their data is comprehensive. And therefore, for certain purposes, it may become materially less valuable. And then similarly, in terms of data protection law, chips away at the, the ability of businesses to transfer First, you might see data localization laws that make it harder, if not impossible, to move data out of a jurisdiction as you're expanding or transferring data to, to a new owner. Um, you, you also have problems like j- just simple requirements that you notify data subjects if you're moving data to a new or- new organization. Um, you know, this is often a problem under GDPR and, and uh, a number of other regimes as well. And then finally, I'm gonna, you know, come back to purpose limitation. A lot of times, you want to transfer data uh, as part of a larger acquisition. And the acquiring company wants to do something a little bit different with the data. Um, that's why, why they're interested in it. Um, but again, if you've got this purpose limitation principle, that makes it materially harder. Um, so I think you know, for companies, for particularly for startups, who think, well, look, here's the value of my business. I've got uh, a very cool AI algorithm. And I've got a very cool data set that the, the algorithm uses. And we can use this to predict results. Well, if, if, if you're really think of that data as one of your critical business assets, um, I think that in the next five or 10 years, uh, as you grow, that, that, that concept is going to become more problematic for you.
0: The increasing prevalence of rights to object to automated decision-making and um, profiling, whether that um, latter right has been somewhat less um, uh, replicated in... Privacy laws outside of um, outside of Europe, but the right to object to automated decision making is is a right that we're seeing introduced into lots of privacy laws around the world. That can have a, a real impact on the very viability of a of a data intensive business model.
2: And I, I think that this also illustrates a problem that startups face as they grow. Um, so you might think that uh, as you grow, if if you you're twice the size that you you were a year ago, you're, your your com- privacy compliance burdens are going to be twice as much. If you're ten times as big. Uh, your compliance burdens are going to be 10 times as much. But often we find that the, the, the impact of data protection laws is not really linear or proportional in that way. Let me make that tangible here. Um, I think there's a number of tipping points that you encounter when you encounter data protection laws. One is what I'd call operational tipping points. So uh, under many data protection laws, you have the responsibility to respond to data subjects who request information about their data or, or access to their data uh, to delete their data to object to certain types of processing. And if you're a startup, uh, y- y- you may be able to handle that on an ad hoc basis. You may not attract too many of these DSARs. And so you can have somebody go and manually search your, your data and, and find the data on a particular person. Um, but let's say you get to a point where suddenly you're attracting a lot of public attention, you're much bigger, your databases get, uh, you know, exponentially more complex, suddenly you're gonna need more automated solutions if you wanna respond to these data subject access requests. And the problem with this tipping point is that if you haven't planned for it in advance and you haven't built your systems to allow for automated DSAR processing, um, trying to go back and and build that in later is gonna be a, a much more difficult proposition. Now, there's another problem that I call threshold tipping points, which is that uh, there are a lot of privacy regimes that are only applicable at all if you meet certain numerical thresholds. And so here in the U.S., I'm thinking of things like the CCPA and to some extent New York Shield, which apply to, to larger businesses, but not necessarily to much smaller ones. Um, even GDPR has some numerical thresholds sort of built into requirements for, say, uh, records of information processing and whatnot. So what this means is that uh, as you're slowly but surely growing, you may hit one of these threshold tipping points where you're suddenly required to comply with new laws that you weren't before. And that can come as a surprise to a lot of startups. And then finally, I think there's a a problem, particularly in the US with what I'll call role-based tipping points. And that's because we lack a, a comprehensive data protection regime. We often have data protection regimes that are applicable only to certain types of companies or companies that occupy certain roles. You know, the examples of this famously are Gramm-Leach-Bliley, which applies to financial institutions, uh, and HIPAA, which applies to, to various types of covered entities in the healthcare space. I think if a, if a startup knows from the beginning that it's going to be a financial services type company or working with them, then it knows it's gonna to have to comply. But I think the problem is when you have some kind of an interesting product or service, you don't necessarily know who your customers are going to be, you get big enough and suddenly you have a banking customer, you have a healthcare company customer, and you now have to go and 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 learn about and uh, operationalize an entirely new privacy regime. Um, so I think that this is yet another one of these tipping points where a startup may be caught, um, I don't want to say unaware, but but may be caught somewhat by surprise uh, by suddenly increasing burdens that it faces in the data protection space.
1: There is a theme about finding the right balance between one, not burdening the organization of the startup from the beginning with maybe unnecessary governance, etc., cetera. But two, on the other hand, you can have a lot of benefits if you make certain things right from the beginning and not just... As you may be tempted to do it as a creative mind to just go and start working and, and doing things um, and, and and i always think that that this is a theme previously related but also generally right
2: i think you've hit on a good point which is that everybody these days wants to talk about privacy by design or security by design the idea that when you're building a business process or a service you're thinking about privacy from the get-go Ironically, I think that the people who are in the greatest need of privacy by design or security by design are startups. And yet, I think that in many ways, startups are the, the types of entities that are least able to really do privacy by design or security by design. Um, because, f- frankly, they have limited resources and they're focused on keeping the lights running. So t- to give an example, I mean, I think that a lot of privacy regimes are increasingly dictating the structure of, of databases so that your databases not only have data about people but also data about how you got that data, uh, about what kind of consent you got, um, what your role is with respect to that data. So that you know these databases can get very complex, but I, I don't think necessarily that startups are thinking in this way or that necessarily they even have uh, the resources to build their databases with the, with these sort of, operational requirements in mind. Um, and so I think it's very tricky for them as they later need to grow.
1: So w- what do you actually do if you don't have the resources to, to do everything in-house? And, and what we see often is that there's a lot of collaboration and partnerships at the beginning, because you want to, to get the resources in um, and you then just get started. And then the question is who actually owns the IP rights and also who has the access to to the data. And so our advice there would be find the right balance and be careful that there is a lack of transparency or a lack of clarity on who owns it and who is responsible for what. There's
0: often uh, just not sufficient documentation in place um, during the very early stages of a a startup's journey um, to clarify whether it is the, the founder, you know, working in their garage or their kitchen or wherever. Um, that may own that um, that IP uh, or the company. Did they have an employment contract in place at the time? There may be no record of that. Uh, and has it been transferred effectively to the company? Again, without records, it would be very difficult to establish that. Startups often rely upon sort of non-traditional forms of staff: consultants, freelancers, often student interns. And again, without an employment contract in place or other documentation, there can be real doubt as to whether or not um, those rights have been effectively transferred into the company. And then we see another whole range of issues, of course, um, with startups that are spun out of universities. Teresa, I think you came across a good example of uh, those types of issues recently.
1: Yes, definitely. There, There was one case where employees of the university started to develop a software. And they did that in their free time. But it was related to their employment at the university, and so the employment contract at the university included provisions that what they are creating is then the un- in the ownership of the university, and then there was a really tight distinction to make: was it really part of the employment of the of uh, was part of the employment relationship, or was it something different? And then there were negotiations with the university at what terms different items could be used and which ones couldn't, and whether it's an exclusive right or whether the university would also have certain residual rights. And then on top of that came the issue, was it someone who's a founder or who was an employee of the startup then? Because their different provisions apply again. When looking at software, for example, you often have provisions that the the company already owns the exploitation rights by default, unless you've got a different provision agreed. But with founders, that's not the case. So there we had, again, to find the whole chain, which was in the end extremely difficult and led to valuation difficulties.
0: And some universities are less understanding than others when it comes to unpicking those scenarios and granting the waivers that may be needed to clarify IP ownership. But there can be real issues through the application of the university's IP policy, if a member of the academic staff holds a position within a startup. And in particular, if they're involved in IP development themselves or they're supervising their students to develop code or engage in other technology development.
1: And when talking about universities, it's not just universities, right? Uh, right? It, it can also be um, that startups are using government grants.
2: Yeah, and, and I think that is an issue. What we'll sometimes see in the United States, for example, is that startups will often work with funding that they're getting from the U.S. government. And that often comes, you know, sometimes through Small Business Administration or something like that. But it can also often come through uh, our national security apparatus. And when that happens, uh, there's often um, government march in rights that that will that will take effect, and and usually those are contractual, but sometimes they're also creatures of you know generally applicable law. And it makes it a little bit harder necessarily to disentangle the U.S. government from the IP that you create you know, maybe one or two years down the line when you want to sell yourself to an investor.
0: Well, I can tell you that's a very real issue uh, in China. We're often financial support from uh, the Chinese Academy of Sciences or government or provincial um, authorities very often carries with it um, conditions on transfer of the IP and sometimes even commercialization of the IP outside of China where approval will be needed. Another issue we often find when we come to sort of kick the tires on a, um, on a, on a startup is uh, prevalent use of open source software. It's naturally very attractive for startups to use open source software. It's free. Uh, it reduces application development costs. Um, it can facilitate participation in ecosystems and uh, the adoption of useful features that are expected by the community. But Teresa, that can create an issue for uh, an investor.
1: A while ago, when someone or an investor heard open source, they were very, very nervous from from the get-go. This has changed, in my view, because investors become more and more sophisticated and have understood when looking at open source, not every bit of open source is bad in a way or is, or is dangerous. It's about the right processes and be careful how you implement it. And then you can reap the benefits of it. And investors understood that. And so it's really, what we saw is that there is a focus on, in diligence on how open source software is used. And it's often even then standard to, to conduct black duck reports and to see what kind of open source software was used. But what is the risk when using open sources if you're not careful? There's a so-called viral effect. So when using open source, there are sometimes, depending on the license requirements, if you use it in the code you implement, you have to disclose the source code then more broadly, or that you can't use it for commercial use, or that you have to use it or have to distribute it free of charge. And that then only not applies to the code you're using as open source, but that to your whole product. And we're looking from an investor's perspective, that could also then, if the investor wants to integrate the startup product in its own, that could even have the viral effect on the then product.
0: I agree with your observation. Generally, that there's a bit more tolerance amongst the investor community for open source software. Often these open source components are fairly discreet. Uh, they can be complementalized and eliminated um, if there is pollution from uh, copyleft license terms. But this does stress the importance of good record keeping. Uh, investors are going to want to know what off, uh, open source software components are incorporated, which versions of those components, uh, which license terms apply, which versions of those licenses apply, and to really understand what functions the open source software supports. And most importantly of all, has it been modified? How has it been modified and what's been done with that um, modification? Because that's where a copy left license term can really have an impact.
1: Absolutely. If you don't have these records, then investors will make a huge discount on valuation because they just can't assess the risk.
0: Okay, that just about wraps us up. I'd like to thank Peter and Teresa for sharing those valuable insights with us.